If you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 2, and if you don't, it's printed in your bulletin. We're going to read this portion of Scripture that's pretty familiar to most people, but I think that uh, sometimes it can be a little confusing. We're going to go through that since we started our life groups, and I hope that all of you will get in a life group. We have five of them meeting all over the west side on different nights. And you don't have to go every single time, although we'd love for you to be there whenever it meets. But if you can go to a life group, I think it's going to enrich your life, the life of your family, and uh, maybe friends that you feel like you could invite to the life group that you could not invite to church. Maybe they have an aversion to church. Um, And these life groups are not Bible studies. They are really... Uh, just get-togethers to have a good time and eat and talk and visit. And there will be, once a month, we're going to go through a a book that we have uh, picked out. So uh, please look into that if you have any questions about it. Now hear the Word of God. I'm going to start in verse 40, and I think in your bulletin it picks up at 42 of Acts chapter 2, but that's all right. Just listen to the first few verses. With many other words... Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles." And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we talk about community. Um, If you you read some, and Dawson and I and others uh, in our our world of pastors, uh, we read a lot of stuff that probably never comes across your radar. We have to read these things because they have to do with our our profession, if you want to call it that. which I, I don't think it's a profession, but if uh, one of the things that we read about very often are conflicts in church. Um, when I got became a Christian in nineteen, I became a Christian in the mid '70s. In 1981, we were involved in a church, and we just got in. You know, it was like some toxic stuff, and we ended up leaving the church for ten years. Didn't go back to church. Uh, and it almost cost our marriage, and our kids were messed up, not because of church, but because of their messed up parents. Uh, conflict in a community keeps people away from church. They say, oh man, I went to church, and they were just terrible, people were terrible. And that's true. But you actually need to be in that uh, pressure cooker, if you will. You need to be in there because Only then and only there will some of the deepest problems that we experience as human beings uh, be revealed. It's like marriage or like work. Um, If you could live on a desert island all by yourself, you would not have a problem. But, well, you would. 
you get lonely. But if you have just one other person, then you experience or can experience conflict. In the book of Acts, we see God forming or actually reforming His people. This group of people is going to include uh, Gentiles as well as Jews. They're going to include people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Like Dawson said in the, in the announcements, he's going to throw together people that would never be together. You know, you can't choose your relatives, but you can choose your friends. And in church, you really can't choose your friends either. We're just all here together. And when we look around, we see people that are vastly different from us, different backgrounds, different history, different hurts, different pain, different wounds, different gifts, all together. God did that on purpose. He said, wow, God, you know, I wish we could go and become like the New Testament church. They were a mess. You don't want to go back and be like them. You want to be you and learn what it is to serve Christ in a community. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time someone has told me, oh, I don't, need, I don't need to go to church to worship God, which is true. You don't need to go to church to worship God. But if you don't go to church to worship God, you're going to miss out on a lot of things, maybe most things that God has for you because the church is His bride. No matter how badly we think about the church, God loves His church. He loves His people. And so we're going to continue talking about what it is to build community. And in this passage in Acts, you see the formation, the, the, the uh, embryo of the first century church coming together. And it's a pretty rosy picture. So I'm going to point out a few things that, that are, are bedrocks. They're not all of them. They're not all in this passage. But there are foundations that you must understand in order to be... Uh, a member of the church, part of the church, someone who can serve the church, and also someone who will receive what the church has for you. And believe me, if you're in a good, healthy church, you will receive much more than you give. And I believe our church is that way. So look at verse 40. With many words, Peter bore witness and exhorted them. He says in your translation, it probably says... Uh, something else, but the literal translation is be saved from this crooked generation. What it, 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 I think it says save yourself. Well, you cannot save yourself. I don't really know why they translated it like that because it's in an imperative mood. It's a command and it's in the passive uh, tense and it's our passive voice. Uh, so it's, it's saying you, you need to be saved. Go find that salvation because the generation in which we live is crooked. It's the word scolios. It's like scoliosis. Some of you may know about a crooked spine. And it's saying the, the, the generation in which we live, this was the first century, is crooked. It's going to take you all over in directions you would not normally want to go. Now, we think that we're living in the worst, most corrupt generation. That is not even close to the truth. The first century, that world was so horrific that it's hard for us in the modern world to even imagine what it was like. And that's where the church was birthed. And we need to understand that they had an understanding 
of a common condition. Peter is preaching a sermon and he said humanity, all humanity, has a common condition. Sin. Save yourself or be saved from this crooked generation. There was an understanding that all people had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God even before the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 3.20. Even before he said that, people knew there was something wrong because every corner, every home, everywhere you went, people had gods they had created and they would pray and they would try to earn some sort of approval from that God in order to, to live. And there were hardly any human beings, even today, 90, I don't know, something like 97% of people on the earth believe in a God or gods, he, she, it, whatever they are. The statistics are plain that there's only a very small, maybe 3, 4% of human beings are actually atheists. But we think nobody believes in God. Everybody believes in God. And everybody is trying to find some way to reach out to the, into, the, into the transcendent and find approval from that God. And into that arena, God brings His church. Now, His church had always existed. Israel in the Old Testament was His church. And before that, uh, it was Moses and his family, Jacob and the twelve tribes. God has always had His people. Even in the Garden of Eden, he had Adam and Eve. He's always had his people. And they were always the assembly or the church, the ecclesia of God. The difference now is that Gentiles and people from all different cultures and races and backgrounds are part of that. So it was a common condition. Sin. Money won't get you free from sin. Giftedness won't get you free from sin. How good you look won't get it. Race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, your personal behavior, your personal ethics. None of those will get you where you want to go. In other words, to be accepted by God, you can't get there on your own with anything that you have. You must have someone from the outside who comes in and rescues you. Now that is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion, even, sad to say, large parts of Christianity. There's large parts of traditional Christianity, even in Protestantism. We, you know, when I've counseled people in the past, it doesn't take me long to find out that their struggles are really very often based in a fear or a lack of assurance can I be sure that God loves me? What do I need to do in order to find a smile on His face? How can I please Him? And we can please Him. I think we all try to do that. But here at Christ the King, and in our particular theology, we say God is already pleased with you because of the work of Jesus Christ, and because Christ brought you into His community, into His church, made you part of His body, you have His approval. You don't have to earn it. Now, out of that 
out of that resource of already being accepted, already being filled with the Holy Spirit, already having the smile of God completely on. He's not frowning. He's not holding his nose at his people. He's got, you've got it all. Out of that largesse, what we call grace, out of that you start living obediently. You follow Him. You crucify your flesh if you have to. You put to death sin. You fight. You enter the battle. And he's pleased with that. He's as pleased with your repentance as he is of your obedience. It's always been that way. He loves it when people mess up, not the mess up part, but when they do mess up, he loves it that we come back to him and say, please, God, forgive me. Look what I've done. Against you and you only have I sinned, David said in Psalm 51. I mean, you all know this. God loves His people. We have a common condition. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and we know there's something wrong with us. And that common condition leads to a common need. Every human being I have ever met, with very few exceptions, know they need help. They need more than help. They need saving They don't need a life preserver thrown to them. They need someone who will jump in the water, go down to the bottom of the ocean, and breathe life into their dead body. Not just make it possible, oh, here's a life life preserver, save yourself. That's not good enough, folks. It's never been good enough, and it's not good enough now. If Moses hadn't gone to Egypt and gone in there and created all that havoc in the name of Jesus Christ although he didn't know the name yet, in the name of the bush, the the yod vav the I am that I am, if he had not gone in there and gotten them and brought them out, they wouldn't have gotten out. And he has done that with his church. He has gone out into the world and he's gotten us and brought us in. You see, it's not enough just to be saved and then you kind of hang out in your own world and do your own thing. It's one of the reasons why there's a certain amount of danger associated even with broadcasting on YouTube and some of these things because people can get into the habit of just backing off, isolating, and you will not experience the riches of what God has for you. So there's our common condition, sin and our common need of a Savior, someone who will really come in and help us. Second thing you see from these passages is an amazing devotion. The early church had a passion and a devotion for what we call the means of grace. Now those of you, if you've uh, been around uh, Reformed theology and read some of the books, you'll know what I'm talking about. The means of grace are the ways in which God interfaces in tangible ways with His people. In other words, if you're just sitting uh, in the lotus position and you've got your chakras all going on and you're just sitting there like that, uh, that's not necessarily going to help you. You need the means of grace. And he has, he has established what those means of grace are. And Peter mentions them. Look at 41. Those who received the Word, Peter was preaching his first 
sermon. This is on the day of Pentecost. Those who received His Word were baptized. There's the sacrament. Right away you have the Word and sacrament together. And this is why we don't, we don't serve Holy Communion just willy-nilly. If someone calls me, and we've done this, someone is in the hospital, and they, can I have Holy Communion? We say yes. And we get a couple of us together and we go over there and we pray and we talk about the Word of God. We might even sing a hymn. And then we can serve communion. But we never go to the hospital and just break out the communion kit, which I have back there in that room, break out the communion kit and give them communion as if it's magic. You need to be in community to get communion. That's what it means. That's what it's all about. Those who received the word were baptized and they added 3,000 that day. New converts. This is something that I think is unique to our particular historical moment, our cultural moment, because we live in a very individualistic society. America was built on individualism. And, uh, and that's good. There's some good things about being an individual. But uh, there's also some bad things about it. Listen to this. New converts didn't merely add Christianity to their already busy lives, but they devoted themselves to the Christian experience. In other words, when you're in, you're all in. It's not like, well, I'm going to take Christianity and I'm just going to apply it to myself like it's another appendage, an arm, a leg, or whatever. You know, it's just another part of me. No, Christianity becomes the, the, the center, the, the center around which our lives together and your life individually orbits around the person and work of Jesus, n- around nothing else. That commands our full, complete allegiance. Anything else that intrudes within the walls of that relationship is considered an idol and is considered adultery, unfaithfulness. And God wants us to be looking. He wants us to be on the lookout both in our churches and in our own lives for those things that, that say, that we say, I cannot be whole, I can't be happy unless I have this. Now, oh God, yes, I want to have spirituality and all that, that too. But also, I need this. And that's deadly because you know what's going to happen. Whatever this is, you're going to lose it sometime. Maybe you'll have it all your life. But when you are on the hospital bed and you're dying, your your life is ebbing away, even that will be gone. Then what do you have? It's hard, you know, when you're young, you don't think about that. I've got years ahead. When you're old, you start thinking about it a lot. Because even the things we have clung to so tightly all our lives that nobody could wrench them out of our hands, they're just an iron grip, they end up going away too. What will make you happy? What will stay with you until the day you die and beyond? If there's an afterlife. Not everybody's convinced there is. But if there is, the only one that's going to be there waiting for you with his arms wide as somebody who conquered death itself. Otherwise, you just die and rot and turn to nothing. 
back into the dust. And if that's true, then what, mean, what does anything mean? What, does our, what do our lives mean? They become a zero. And the only place you can find that is with other people. That's where you experience the community. God never meant for us. It's not good that man is alone. We weren't meant to be alone. So new converts didn't merely add Christianity to their already busy lives, but rather they devoted themselves to their Christian experience. We call it discipleship. And we have programs for discipleship. But discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is a mindset. A disciple goes to the Master and follows the Master and does it with other people. You cannot... Folks, I've said this before, you cannot. It's impossible to become a disciple if all you do is come to church and then leave. You cannot be a disciple. You are not a disciple of Jesus. You cannot. The very word disciple means community. It means being together and following the Master. You know, Jesus was, he, he, he was what he was called a peripatetic ministry. That's what the old rabbis did. They would walk along like this and all their guys would be in behind them and they would be talking and they'd be memorizing everything He said. Because they didn't have iPads. Which, you know, it's too bad, but they didn't. They didn't even have pencils and paper. They had to memorize what he said. And they would do that. And they would go together and then they would talk among themselves and say, oh gosh, we're following the king. Which one of us can be greatest? And the king would turn around and say, what did you say? Are you out of your mind? The least shall be the greatest. Now, there, that's how you learn. In the trenches with the king and your brothers and sisters and elders and youngers and all the rest. A devotion to the means of grace. They devoted themselves. The word devote actually means an intense, listen, intense and persistent, diligent effort in the face of difficulty. You're just going to, I tell you all the time, folks, run to Jesus. You don't try to fix your mess. Take your mess. Go run to Him. And I give it to Him and say, ha, I don't know what to do with this. And he will say, give it to me and absorb it because he already did. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He already took it. Why do you want to hold on to it? Give it to him. Go on your knees. Repent. Believe the gospel. Get up and say, okay, let's go. Persistence. You never quit. Never give up. Never let go. And when you do let go, you've got to remember my words. I'm going to give them to you right now. When you do let go and you say, forget about it, I just can't hold on anymore, know this, that He has wrapped you with cords of love. His love for you is what holds you in place, not your persistence. We must persist to be sure. But at the end of the day, folks, He's got you. And He's not going to let you go. You can say no to Him, He'll never say no to you. You can shake your fist at Him and He's just going to grab you and pull you in closer. And if you presume on His grace, you say, oh, if He's going to do that, I'll just go wild. Don't do that. Very bad. Very dangerous. 
because he's a loving parent and like wayward children he will go get you and bring you back and there's all kinds of discipline and stuff like that he's not going to ever leave you if you belong to him they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching there's more word to fellowship this is the word you've all heard if any of you have been in church any length of time you've heard the word koinonia koinonia is a Greek word that means to be in common Together, communion, community, all comes from this idea of communion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to having holy communion, something that the Protestant church sadly let go. They wanted to run as far away as they could from the uh, uh, Catholic church and the Eastern church. They want to get away from all that ritualism. And we became impoverished because of it. And so... At Christ the King, we take communion every Sunday and even some other times when we gather at Christmas and Easter and times like that, we will have Holy Communion together. The breaking of bread, this is a phrase that's used over and over again. It was the the breaking of bread is when the head of the family, the father, the papa, like me, I'm the papa, I will go and take the bread and I will break it and I will pass it around to all my children. Now that's symbolic. I'm not, some of you are a lot older than me. I mean, I'm young. It's when the head of the family would take the bread and he would distribute it to all those that are his. Do you, are you hearing it? Family, community, people. You don't tear the bread and then eat it. You know, that, that's just you. But when you can tear it and share it, Wow. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? The word participation in your English Bible is actually koinonia. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not koinonia? In the blood of Christ, the bread we break, is it not koinonia? In the body of Christ. And then they had a shared personal experience, corporate and personal. Look at verse 43. Awe, and this is a word that means worshipful fear. It's not being terrified or, you know, there's a boogeyman under the bed. No, it's this overwhelming sense of God's transcendence, His otherness, but at the same time, imminent or as close to you as your own breath. The marvel of the incarnation is the fact that Jesus Christ clothed himself, as we sing, with our frail humanity. He he put it on like a garment. And he looked just like everybody else. He had probably had cavities and scars on his hands from doing work and, and maybe a broken tooth. Skin rough body probably partially malnourished. If we know anything about the ancient world, very few people were well nourished. Very few. When they dig up these corpses and they check their, you know, their bones and all that stuff, most of them suffered from malnutrition of some kind. That's your Savior. He took it on for us. Put it on. And they had a shared experience of that awe and that wonder of both Jesus' transcendence and His imminence, His closeness. Close as your breath. And so the the 
apostles did signs and wonders. And so that experience was confirmed experientially to the people around us. Now today, you know, we say, well, gosh, I don't see Christians doing many miracles and I don't see many healings and all that. Well, you need to come to church more. You'll see more of it. And you want to know the biggest miracle? The biggest one is that you're even here. And if you've become a Christian, that's another one. He went out somewhere. I don't know where he found you. I know where he found me. And it was not a pretty sight. I looked great this morning because I actually showered today. Put on a little aftershave. And of course, I can put on a good face so you don't really know. But if you saw me when I cried out for help to him, you wouldn't recognize me. And I wouldn't recognize you probably. Maybe you were a righteous person, a really upstanding person. That's just fake. We don't know how to be real. We don't know how to be authentic. And Jesus comes into that world. He goes down to the bottom and, uh, and, and the rescue comes. He breathes the breath of life. He breathes it back into us. Like He did to Adam. So they had a shared experience, a confirmation of God's goodness to you. Now, I don't know. When, I, when I'm alone and quiet and I just thought to you know, think for a minute... I can't believe that God would have reached in to find me. When I come to church and I get to know people, and many of you, I know your story, some of you I don't, I'm amazed that God could have gotten you as well. How did He do it? How did He go? How did He reach them? It's a miracle. It's a wonder. It's a confirmation that we're in the presence of God Himself. You won't know that unless you're around other people with that shared experience. Next, they had a shared community. And this is where it really gets interesting. Look at verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together. That word, the phrase, actually the phrase they translate it uh, together is epitu uh, altu. And it, what it means is uh, they were in close proximity. They actually were Literally, together, like we are this morning. They were in the same house, the same rooms, the same church. They did things together. They lived their lives together. And the idea behind our life groups, and I'm not making a a plug for life groups, although I am, the idea is that we can't do it here on Sunday morning. It's just not possible. It's not what Sunday morning is all about, necessarily. But when you get in your home and you're around a table and you're eating and drinking, talking about life, now you're in community. Now you're able to experience and hear people's stories and and share your story with someone. Someone who has a shared experience and can weep with you when you weep and can rejoice with you when you rejoice. Now one of you may like the Dallas Cowboys and the other one likes the, I don't know, Is there another team in the NFL? Yeah, there is, right? Like what? Cincinnati Bengals or something like that? You know, you can share those experiences with people. Everything. Amazing. The believers, they also look at verse 45. They were selling their possessions and distributing to all anybody who had a need. You know, 
right away you're, oh, they were a bunch of communists, they were a bunch of socialists. No, and this is not prescriptive. It's simply descriptive of what was going on. They were so overwhelmed by God's generosity to them, they became extraordinarily generous to one another. And churches are to be, there should be no need, no lack in our churches. No, not everybody driving a BMW, but certainly, if you have a need, where are you going to get it met, except a real need, among the people of God? We have a deacon benevolence ministry here at our church. We've got all kinds of things that we support because we know we have to be connected. We need one another. The believers displayed a generous attitude towards possession. There was no, listen, there was no blind rush to rid themselves of all their possessions as if personal property was itself evil. That's not what was going on. Instead, they gave as there was the need. Believers continued every day to meet together in the temple courts as well as in their homes. But this was short-lived. Here's the caution, folks. This was short-lived and was about to change forever. In the next three chapters, Luke presents both outside opposition and internal disharmony. This is the threat. Satan's not stupid, folks. He's pretty bright. He's been around a long time. And he knows if he can isolate us like he did with covid He can kill you and destroy you. If He can get you mad at the church, mad at the pastor, mad at the elders, mad at the world, if He can stir up your anger against politics or masks or vaccines, it doesn't matter. If He can just get you mad about something and and draw you out and pull you away, or that person said something to me at church and that person looked at me funny and, and at work the other day this person did this. If they can do that and get you, if he can get you by yourself, he will slaughter you. Your refuge, your safety is being with people who understand that and will come alongside you and help you, protect you, give you wise advice. And you can only find that when you're around other people who have a shared, what we call, a common horizon. So they would attend, they had corporate and gathered worship, they would attend the temple together, they were of one mind. And that common horizon, folks, Peter actually started his sermon with it. You want to hear it? What is the common horizon of your life? Is it your family? Is it your nationality? Your patriotism? Your bank account? Your, you know... The country club where you hang out, those are your real people. And church, well, I just, you know, I'll go throw them a bone at church, but I really like these people. Peter started his sermon with the common horizon, with the foundation. Listen, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through Him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed Him to a cross and killed Him. But God released him from the horrors of death. Listen to this. And raised him back to life. For death could not 
keep him in its grip. Couldn't do it. Because he wasn't just a man, he was also God. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Peter's words pierced them to the heart. See, it went all the way in. Them, plural. And they said, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? And Jesus said, every one of you, repent of your sins and be baptized. Turn to God for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. You'll you'll be given the gift. And folks, you have the same Holy Spirit that I do. You don't have a different one. And if Christians start to live like that, that we have the same Holy Spirit, the same God, the same Father, the same need, the same Savior, we'll we'll be able to overlook some of these things that the enemy divides us with. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we thank You for our Savior who gave Himself for us and we pray that You would strengthen us as a community. Build us up. There are problems among us, Father, but let us bring them to You. And we know that You will bless us with unity even in our diversity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.